This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Our games right now. Beyonce Illuminated. Writing pastiche. And cannibalism at Jamestown. We average nine new titles a day. That's over 60 a week. And we've got well over 15,000 RPG titles online right now. Drive through RPG, the one true source for RPGs. The rattle of dice and the sound of takeout menus being fluttered from hand to hand signifies the entry once more into the gaming hut. And within those friendly confines, uh, we, I think, are going to talk today about what we're doing in our own respective gaming huts. Because obviously, if one is to be a uh, game designer, one should game. And if one is a role-playing game designer, I think it is an uncontroversial truth that one should be involved in a role-playing game. As, as uncontroversial as that is, though, uh, I'm sure that you, just as I have, have often seen the traces and tracks in people's particularly adventure writing of the fact that they are not currently gaming and haven't gamed for a while and are uh, making... Uh, among the mistaken assumptions that one sometimes makes when writing an adventure, uh, the telltale signs that one has forgotten some of the basics of the role-playing dynamic. Now, Robin, if you begin us with another topic, then we're never going to get out. You have to go uh, into the gaming hut <laughs> to, to leave it again. Well, th- that's a preamble, Ken. <laughs> oh, okay. It's, it's a, pre- it's a pre- preamble. We, we, we have to justify this, let me tell you about our campaign segment with, with something highfalutin. <laughs> if, speaking of gaming traditions, if, if let me tell you about my campaign required justification, no one would ever get to. And having your own <laughs> podcast is surely, surely justification enough. Um, well, people do sometimes ask us at uh, panels uh, what uh, games we're playing, sometimes ask us uh, what games by other people were playing, and sadly the answer to that is, uh, well, I kind of have to spend most of my time playing uh, my own games in order to figure them out well enough to have them be good when they come out. So uh, what, are, what are you currently playing, one of your own games or uh, somebody else's? I am, in a sense, playing one of my own games, but in this particular case, uh, we are running, uh, or rather I am running a uh, science fiction game uh, using the CODIS system, which was the engine for the old Decipher Star Trek game that I co-designed with Christian Moore and Ross Isaacs and Steve Long and uh, Matt Colville back in the day uh, when we were uh, all part of the Decipher game team. So there's no pecuniary interest in you refining your knowledge of this game. It is, it, uh... it, it is um, uh, it, there is no first-order pecuniary interest. I found that when I was writing the CODIS system, I was... Because, I don't know if it was because of the nature of the of the system, because it was sort of crunchier than, than I was used to uh, working on. Although I was used to working on GURPS, so it was actually less crunchy, but it was more uh, whole design work. Yeah, I, I found it, myself getting... crunchy, I would say. Yeah, I, I found myself getting much better at game design. And I think running a game under that kind of system is probably 
stretching some of those muscles that I had not stretched for, for a little bit of a time. So I think that there may be a second order pecuniary interest, and then also because it's not in the Star Trek world, but is in a far future that I may at some point um, uh, use in a product, then there may be a, a pecuniary interest. But for right now, all it is is a way to sort of, you know, play, uh, as you indicate, get a handle on adventure structure as it is actually played in the field, or at least in my field, which is admittedly something of a uh, distorted field since they're playing under me. And if you could send me out with a game, then, <laughs> well, Unknown Armies would be the best-selling game in the world, obviously. Right. And so it's a game that, uh, to some extent, thinks like you think, because you had a hand in its uh, creation. And so what is this uh, far future setting. The far future setting, we designed the setting collaboratively using Microscope, which is a great uh, indie game that exists basically as guided, not quite storytelling, but guided history telling, I guess, to create a setting. And the setting is a setting uh, in both time and space. You establish the beginning of the game of Microscope, uh, things that are always allowed and things that are never allowed. So, for example, in our Microscope game, we said we're never allowed to have godlike aliens, and we're never allowed to have um, uh, time travel, and we're never allowed to have bumpy forehead aliens. All aliens had to be truly alien. And conversely, we were always allowed to have uh, xenoarchaeology, and we were always allowed to have space marines, and we were always allowed to have a non-domesticated uh, space travel. So space travel is inherently dangerous and dirty and tied up with uh, dangerous aliens. So it's sort of a alien-verse aesthetic in a Star Trek sort of universe. And how did you arrive at these alwayses and neverses? In Microscope, each player gets one yes or one no, and then you go around the table until you have, uh, until people are visibly groping, and then you just stop. And was there a no that uh, palpably vexed you, or someone closed off an avenue that you'd hoped for? Uh, when, when someone said no time travel, I always take that as a personal slap, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, my players are, um, they, they felt that there was going to be enough uh, damage done to physics with faster than light and uh, artificial intelligences and such. So we had to, uh, we, we had to sort of close off some of those boundaries. And was this a knowing foreclosure of a, a Ken Riff or a, just a, a separate issue of them uh, not wanting to deal with paradoxes and timey-wimeyness? My players um, all know me very, very well, so I always assume that everything is done with uh, knowledge and malice aforethought, and they assume <laughs> likewise, so it works really well. Yes, if we were to do something like that, my players might well uh, bust me on uh, gods and godlike entities as well. Well, I think I said no godlike entities just because I, I hate them and because they're a horrible temptation for the Game Master, I, I find, to, um, uh, to sort of... Uh, Misuse your power. And, and again, maybe this is a habit that I got into running all those years of Call of Cthulhu, where everything in the universe is so much more powerful than the players that the amount of ego you can get out of it, <laughs> out of killing the, the, the party, is, is pretty minimized. It's an interesting question, and perhaps one for another segment, as to how beneficial it is to tie your hand behind your back and forego your favorite gestures and tropes, and how much... Uh, you should just embrace that, well, there's a reason that I like this thing, mm -hmm. and uh, maybe I should just go with it. And obviously, if you're someone who plays a number of campaigns over time, as almost everybody does, you can decide in some campaigns to tie your hand behind your back and in other ones to let your trope flag fly. Yeah, in, in this one, um, I have a tendency to prefer player-directed sandbox games and 
with this uh, coming on the heels as it did of a Nobilis uh, campaign, everyone felt that we were a little tired of player-directed sandboxes, and so this is much more a mission and encounter-based uh, game. It's a Star Trek-type uh, universe. The players are the uh, crew of the Hamilton O. Smith, which is a mostly scientific ship uh, in the service of Tau Ceti University, which is one of the six or five great human powers in the uh, human uh, stellar sphere. And they are going out and, of course, getting into things that are just a little bit beyond their capacity to deal with or understand, because that's what makes adventure happen. And they are uh, they have discovered an awful lot of uh, ancient alien artifacts because of the aforementioned xenoarchaeology, and we are currently in a tense uh, race against time to examine one such alien artifact, a derelict uh, ship by the race that may or may not have invented hyperspace travel, may, have, may or may not have invented hyperspace, actually, um, before a really, really dangerous alien shows up. So it's it's been pretty great. And so was this animating premise of xenoarchaeology something that you also arrived at by group collaboration, or because it was a you decided to do a more GM driven thing? You said you are xenoarchaeologists. It, it's a it's a it's a yes. Um, uh, it was one of the yeses in the setting, and I forget if I did it or or Will Heinmarch did it. Um, I may have done it because I really like xenoarchaeology. I think it's a really fruitful uh, a game. Uh, element and well it uh, could be referred to as xenomaguffinry xenomaguffinry exactly and so i i, I wanted a, a, a universe that that felt old uh as well as felt uh new and futuristic i, I wanted the, the future to go way back before mankind and uh have all kinds of, of of neat stuff in it as indeed i think it does and so how far into this uh, campaign are you at this point we are currently running either the fourth or fifth episode i guess of this of the series i'm not sure how many episodes we're going to run. It's going to be a thing where we're going to, I think, sort of pull back in another couple of few months and say, are we still having fun or is it time to, you know, cancel the series and, and move on and do a different thing? Now, do you have a, a pretty stable group that switches from uh, series to series or do your series breaks tend to occur when you lose somebody and have to bring somebody else in to replace them? I have had a fairly stable group, a, a fairly solid core, which is being uh, shattered as I speak, I think, by the uh, treasonous uh, malfeasance of one of my players who is moving to Los Angeles. Um, and, From uh, Chicago to Los Angeles? That's punishment enough. I, I would, you would think so, but I am insisting on further punishment. Uh, but anyway, he is, he is indeed d betraying everything that he and all decent mankind hold dear for... 75 degree sunlight but he is he, he has been in my games for you know over a decade and he is one of my best players and most uh, cherished uh fellow gamers he's one of the few guys that i know who's really into hex encounter war games too so that's going to be another hole in my uh gaming uh catalog to fill so i don't know right now we're a little i think over the ideal size of a of a living room game party it's about six players i think and so or seven and so i think when he leaves i don't have a priority of bringing in a new person although i know plenty of other people who are in chicago and would probably make uh fine gamers assuming they can clear their mondays now without giving away anything to your players do you since this is more of a gm directed game by design do you have an arc in mind, or are you waiting a little longer to see uh, what dinosaurs they uh, dig up, even though it's not a sandbox? The interesting and fun thing about Microscope, I mean, there's a lot of interesting, fun things about Microscope. I really recommend it as a setting generation tool uh, for your game group, if you've got a game group out there. 
is that the setting, of course, is a timeline. So it goes from, in our case, the invention of the singularity drive to final peace with the Orion Empire. And our campaign happens in the middle of that timeline. So about a third of the things we developed in Microscope haven't happened yet, including one or two fairly dramatic, you know, uh, suddenly everything is different type events. And I am sort of pointing the game toward one or two of those events and I think that my players may have twigged to which one, but it's, but it's all manner of, uh, of fun because the, the microscope doesn't have exact dates, so no one knows how many years from now, you know, the next war with the Orions breaks out, for example. And is there something that has surprised you particularly about the way that this uh, putatively GM-driven game has been driven so far? Not, not really surprising. I'm, I'm finding that it's, it, my old uh, sandbox habits do in, do still manage to make the individual adventures last longer than they should. I need to really tighten up and start uh, re- offering fewer choices, I guess, or or more starkly uh, immediate ones. I'm, I've tried that with this current uh, episode. So what I'm running right now is a continuation of my second drama system series. Uh, it has been very useful to be playing something because I've been so busy getting drama system out the door and so preoccupied with that plus uh, one of the stone skin fiction anthologies and various other smaller commitments that the idea of having to run something that requires a lot of prep seems very daunting to me right Mm -hmm. now and so we've gone on with this maybe a little longer than might be aesthetically ideal or rather we've just sort of reached the point where it would naturally be the end of a 12 episode season our first season was about that length It would be cool at this point to be able to break and run something else, but I'm just not there yet in my professional life. So we're going to see what happens when you go on, when there's a sudden uh, increased episode order from the network. Mm -hmm. And everyone has to scramble around and um, uh, introduce a new big bat or something. Now, this is the the Danger Circus in the Depression wandering around the American West? Yes, it's called uh, Grease Paint, and this started when basically I threw open to the players what setting they would like to do as their second drama system setting, and they kind of came up with Carnival with the serial numbers filed off. Carnival, but something actually happens. <laughs> uh, yes, and, and uh, what they wanted was something unlike the Hillfolk setting itself, which takes away superpowers and magic and all of the gnarly trappings of procedural storytelling in order to get you used to uh, dramatic storytelling. They wanted a bit of that back, as uh, geeks are wont to do, Mm -hmm. and so they wanted the suggestion that this was sort of a uh, weird, uh, pulpy reality where they could manifest superpowers. Interestingly enough, there have been all sorts of manifested superpowers over the course of the uh, two seasons, but not with the players. Uh, one of the players is a, a circus freak. He looks like a cat boy. And that's the player who always likes to play uh, uh, some sort of feline-aligned character or someone who flies or, uh-huh. uh, failing that, a wizard. Um, and, <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the, the, the standard trilogy. Yes, exactly. Um, although he was an excellent sort of badass uh, warrior in the uh, uh, Hillfolk campaign. Cats are badass warriors. Paul would certainly agree with you on that point. Um, and, uh, Anyone who's seen my cat Virgil in action would also agree. <laughs> yes, uh, if there's a fight between a uh, cat and a similarly sized dog, but, uh, vote for the cat. Um, but anyway, uh, he sort of outwardly looks strange, but none of the other 
characters have chosen to be strange uh, because uh, I think they realized as they went along that that was a, a commitment they were not necessarily prepared to make. <laughs> a road they weren't going to cross. But uh, they, did, they, just, they didn't uh, want to be like mentalists or, or, or strongmen or something that doesn't necessarily look freaky but can still have weird circus powers? Uh, we have a uh, snake handler slash hoochie-coochie girl. Mm -hmm. um, we have uh, an uh, acrobat. Uh, we had a magician during the first season, but his actor got a movie deal and has been written off the show. Oh. Uh, we have the head of the Rousties with a, a dark past. And then we have the uh, father, or uh, father perhaps in quotation marks, of the uh, cat boy. And he's Dr. Fritz, the uh, Hungarian with a uh, dark Eastern European past, who is uh, the impresario of the uh, circus. I think I've listed everybody there um and so uh they uh over the course of the first season they uh realize that uh, a figure who they've all uh, decided is the devil uh has an influence in what they're doing and as urging them to gather together other people with weird powers <laughs> as in find anyone with actual weird powers <laughs> Yes, since uh, they don't have the weird powers themselves, it turns out they're the, they're the guardians or you know creators of a group of uh, people who do, and so of course they have turned out mostly to be kids, and it's uh, becoming increasingly apparent now as the second season goes on that the uh, devil is, uh, or the character who they think is the devil, uh, is gathering them together in order to uh, stave off an alien invasion. No, so he's a uh, at least a devil who keeps his yard picked up. Uh, he may very well be. There's a, a note of uh, moral ambiguity in there that uh, is also something that I would not want to have taken out of my bag of jamming tricks. Now, did the alien invasion come about solely because of the geographical proximity of Roswell, New Mexico, to your uh, campaign setting? Indeed, yes. This is the role of uh, Google Maps as uh, an unacknowledged co-GM. So they uh, started out in the town of uh, West Texas, which at that time was just an interestingly named point on the map and not the site of a terrible fertilizer plant explosion. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so uh, they were sort of stuck there for a while while the cat boy was on trial for uh, murder. And uh, when they finally uh, got him uh, out of there, we looked at the map and saw where they would head if they were going to leave Texas, and uh, there was Roswell. And, and that sort of wrote itself. Right, and so that was the big uh, cliffhanger indication of the new big bad uh, break at the end of the first season was they were headed toward Roswell, and then there were lights on the sky. And so mm -hmm. this second season has all dealt with them sort of edging closer to the aliens and realizing that the uh, devil is having them uh, gather uh, super-powered kids together as a reaction to this, and there's uh, they've been interacting with a, uh, a saucer cult, or I guess a proto-saucer cult since uh, it's the 30s, and people don't use the term saucers. It could be a Saint Germain cult. Well, it's it's pretty alieny, it seems. So uh, so can be Saint Germain. Yeah, there's a bit of anachronism uh, in there. Well, there there are there are um, uh, aliens in the 1930s that that can be done if one is looking for that flavor of uh, UFO uh, adventure and. Perhaps that, again, is another topic. So it, given that you are uh, getting the, 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 the next season order from the network in a hurry, do you, do you have a momentum idea? Do you have something that you hope is going to work out? Or are you just 
hoping that one of your players uh, does something really terribly stupid that will distract everyone. Well, in drama system, you can't plan. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, you, you can sort of try to insert things, and obviously there's a situation that just should continue to escalate, right? Mm -hmm. That if this was an HBO series, and suddenly in the next two episodes the entire alien plot was somehow dispensed with, that would not feel satisfying. So it feels like there should be at least another season or season number of episodes to deal with the uh, with the alien plot. So it sort of has its own uh, momentum, but uh, the momentum of the overall arc is always secondary to what's going on between the players. So we've also had sort of an extended uh, plot line this season where the Dr. Fritz, the impresario character, was uh, for a while possessed by uh, one of the servants of, uh, of Ordo, the devil figure. And so you got that sort of classic TV trope of the uh, central character acting out of character and you're missing them and uh, uh, wanting them to get back to the status quo. And a lot of the other characters were working to try and get him back to the status quo. And then when they finally got him back, it's like, oh man, we hated this guy and now he's back. <laughs> to remind me why we tried to save Spike's life problem. <laughs> right. Yes. And so uh, that's been sort of interesting to see that uh, mechanism arise as a response to that player's uh, desire to sort of create novelty and to uh, test the boundaries of drama system. He's one of those players who always comes in and wants to do something tangential or orthogonal to what's going on and try to uh, riff. And it's been uh, interesting to watch him struggle with a system that requires everybody to step up and bring it. Yeah. Because uh, you can't rely on somebody else to lay down the baseline while you're doing the crazy variations on top of that. Everybody has to uh, bring the baseline and you have to uh, be prepared to uh, make your contribution as much as everybody else. And so uh, if you are a riffer as a character, that the system sort of cures that for you. And also if you're sort of a, a player who is kind of a habitual layer down of vetoes or someone who requires everybody else to petition them for pet petition to move forward, you are also in an unusual territory because the system requires you to keep pushing things forward as much as everybody else does. Now, do you, um, uh, do you think that as if you go into a, a less, un well, a non-drama system game for your next, uh, game after this one, do you think that any of the sort of, uh, alterations in playstyle will carry over, or do you think it'll be snapping right back to good old uh, Adventures of Scooby-Doo, the way that the previous uh, campaigns might have been? Um, I've already seen that happen, because in between seasons of uh, Drama System, we did uh, the uh, Dreamhounds of Paris campaign, uh, which uh, I'll be candid and say did not go particularly well with my home group because this is not a it was it's conceived as a sandbox as basically the trail of cthulhu sandbox game right um, and this is not a group of players that were they not my playtesters i would say hey this is the group that's ideal for a sandbox play yeah right. um because sandbox play and uh, be interesting to hear your experience with this because you that's your default requires a player or preferably two players who are really proactive and uh, good at deciding what to do and good at convincing other people that that's the thing to do. Or are good at causing enough problems that the rest of the party has to willy or nilly solve them. 
uh, well, per- perhaps that. <laughs> yes. um, but uh, it, it was interesting in, in that, you know, when we were playing uh, uh, Dream Hands of Paris, the uh, players were saying that they wanted the structure that they were now used to from Drama System. So I, I fear that I may have now ruined them for anything else. Or you can just go back to uh, more mission-oriented games without necessarily uh, having a full uh, full orchestra drama system needed every time. Yes, and and in fact, this is the the one of the insights I'll be carrying forward as I complete the material for Dreamhounds of Paris will be that it will have to have a series of dials in which sandbox is maybe the default option, but that there's still a way to present it in a more mission-oriented uh, fashion because the uh, uh, process of digging up the plastic dinosaurs was just... Uh, too protracted, and once they dug them up, only half the group really wanted to have plastic dinosaurs anyway. Right, they were they were um, uh, they, they were at a loss as to what to do with them. Whereas the surrealist answer, of course, is paint them green and put them in a fish tank. I guess with the um, slow drift into uh, among my many hats, we may see the light at the end of the gaming hut tunnel. I do want to mention that I am running in my uh, in my Coda game. I'm running it as a troop system game, which I think is something that not enough people are aware of or or willing to try. In which we play one. Every player has a bridge uh, crew character, a command staff, a mission specialist, and a red shirt. So, in theory, we can build out a pleasing mix of character types for all sorts of uh, inner space adventures without explaining why the navigator is always beaming down to the planet. And how many red shirts have you lost so far? Uh, we've lost none because it's very hard to kill uh, people in Coda if they're wearing armor, which we all are because of see previous Space Marine discussion. Well, I, I think that um, indicates a necessary revision to the Coda system. Well, it, it indicates that there is uh, going to be a more dangerous batch of aliens on the horizon, I'll tell you what. And now that we're spoiling things for Ken's players, it's time to close up the gaming hut. Which brings us to our latest installment of Ask Ken and Robin, and this time Terry O'Connell asks, what's your take on the Beyonce as Illuminati meme? And for those of you for whom that does not ring an immediate bell, during the Super Bowl, I guess there's a point where uh, Beyonce, uh, as part of her singing and dancing number, uh, made a little triangle shape with her hands and held it out before her. And of course, because you can make a screen cap of anything these days, uh, some... uh, Wags or paranoids, I'm not sure which, uh, made a screen cap of that and uh, got themselves all over the Twitters, a Twitter with the thought that she was flashing the Illuminati sign. So uh, what are we to make of this, Ken? Well, I think, first of all, we should uh, begin, as we begin all these expeditions, in with the uh, realization that that was not so much the Illuminati sign as that was uh, the diamond sign, which is the symbol of her husband Jay-Z's uh, record and fashion empresario empire, uh, Rock Afella, the rock being the diamond in question. And you can see A-Rod and any number of other people who are standing near Jay-Z throwing the diamond in approved uh, hip-hop fashion. Uh, I, I think that there there is an interesting parallel to that because the hand sign that she that, that she makes, if you extend your, your other two fingers on either hand out uh, a la the Vulcan uh, salute, 
you get the blessing of the Kohanim, which is a sort of Jewish ritual symbol. And so we are just, you know, moments away from this all going down the uh, Illuminati rabbit hole. But I will say uh, that if I'm going to have a secret master, I thoroughly endorse it being someone who works as hard and is as perfection-oriented and detail-obsessed as Beyonce. I think that that is a terrific kind of a secret master to have. And if the Illuminati are looking around to uh, expand the ranks uh, from the current crop of extraordinarily mediocre international bankers and uh, warmongers they have running things. They they certainly could do worse than to uh, put uh, Mrs. Carter in charge of everything, and I think we'd have things in tip-top shape in no time. Yeah, Beyonce is really interesting as a pop icon for her sort of uh, thoroughgoing, airbrushed uninterestingness, which is not to be confused with lack of talent or uh, not being competent as a pop star, but it's almost sort of a uh, content-free, aspirational icon spot that she occupies. You know, for as you suggested, she is the hardest working woman in show business, and uh, she lets you see her work at all times. And, uh, you know, even her uh, considerable sexiness is sort of a... Uh, almost sort of a, a presentation of the idea of sexiness without uh, necessarily actually having the human elements of sexuality. And it's part of her sort of perfect status presentation, right? It's, it's too perfect to be uh, salacious in any way. It's as if it's a, uh, you know, she has the formula for uh, pop stardom and is making sure that uh, she perfects every... Uh, bit and portion of it, including, uh, you know, she's now, uh, her publicist now contacts websites that have unflattering photos of her <laughs> and tries to cajole uh, them into taking her, uh, them down. A, a rare misstep for Miss Carter. Yes. And so unlike, for example, uh, Madonna or Madonna Jr., i.e. Lady Gaga or the or Bowie, who first started doing this, where there's a very sort of conscious, ongoing manipulation of the image, uh, here with Beyonce, the image is sort of set in this uh, point of sort of aspiration and perfection, which is uh, uh, impersonal yet undeniably effective. So it sort of makes sense that, uh, you know, if she was to have an elliptonic affiliation, that it uh, would be the Illuminati, who, of course, are trying to uh, uh, struggle for uh temporal domination. And uh, I think the question about throwing the diamond is not, is this really the diamond, but uh, why has Jay-Z chosen the Illuminati triangle for his uh, business enterprise? Well, uh, I think the reason that Jay-Z chose the diamond is because uh, Jay-Z at the time was working for the elements of the Illuminati that are attempting to uh, engage in a practice that uh, us scholars know as making manifest that which should be hidden. And it is a moment that uh, the, 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 it comes out of Masonic lore, and it began as a thing Masons weren't supposed to do. You're not supposed to make manifest that which should be hidden. You're not supposed to go out and be an obvious Mason because you'll get, you know, uh, fired from court or hung or whatever would happen to Masons back in the battle days. And next thing you'll be driving a little miniature car around with a fez exactly, on. Exactly, with a fez on top, and no one wants that. Except... I guess, you know, kids at parades. Anyway. And sellers of miniature cars. Well, yeah, this, the miniature car, the big miniature car is powerful in this country. You cannot cross them unless, you know, you're up on a curb. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, 
So the uh, so so the 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 notion amongst uh, awesome conspiracy theorists is that as the Masonic organization tightened its grip around uh, the world, it begins to yearn as the heart for the cooling stream for the eschaton, right? For the for the end times to happen when they can finally reveal themselves as our true uh, lords and masters. But before they can do that, there has to be a period of conditioning of causing people to unconsciously recognize Masonic mastery. And this is the process, the, the, the time or the process called making manifest that which should be hidden. And it is done when you do things like um, uh, uh, send a rocket to the uh, moon with a Masonic uh, flag on it, or you um, uh, engage in uh, uh, putting the great seal of the Illuminati on the back of the U.S. dollar bill. Uh, things like that that are bringing the the hidden out into the open to move the occult from a secret symbol to a symbol of overt power. And uh, having Jay-Z throw the Illuminati triangle is, uh, which is, of course, if you look at it, also the Eye of Horus, and it goes back to the Mysteries of the Pyramids. Um, it is a one of their ongoing campaign, and you can look in uh, books by various excitable uh, scholars of the topic. I, I want to say Tex Mars is, is really the go-to guy on this, but I could be wrong. I could be conflating him with another guy. But there used to be someone who had really nice books where they just take photographs. Basically, it's like, you know, the, the everything in, a, in an average year's worth of Newsweek, and they would go and they would find the really awesome uh, examples of making manifest that which should be hidden, and show you the degree to which that these symbols existed all around you. It's a, it's a great sort of exercise in um, uh, apophenia of, of finding uh, unconnected connections, and it, it's really good for a conspiracy writer or an occultist or anyone who's who's, who's exploring that sort of theme, because uh, Robert Anton Wilson mentions that once you hear about the magic of the number 23, you'll recognize the number 23 every time you see it. It's the same sort of thing. Once you've recognized the hand triangle, you start seeing it everywhere, and it turns out that it, it mapping the capacity of human beings to make patterns is, to my mind, the, the fun part of, of, of conspiratology. And therefore, people who do this kind of thing are really, you know, stepping up and bringing it. And, and so the, the making manifest that which should be hidden is simultaneously a great party game that you can play at home and also a really exciting uh, period for those of us who are... Uh, observing the conspiracy, because it means that we are moving into the time when it's going to be put up or shut up, and we're all going to be um, uh, given the mark of the beast or whatever. So it, it's it's much more exciting than the boring time when the secret society has to be secret and no one can publish excitable pamphlets and tracts about it. So if Beyonce is uh, bringing about the eschaton, uh, I think we're both uh, kind of sanguine about the prospects of uh, her as the leader of this uh, great mystic inbreak. She's certainly a uh, uh, if nothing else, the diligent. Uh, she's sort of the uh, the Hillary Clinton of, uh, of pop stars in that way. Um, so if we're on Beyonce's side, uh, who are we afraid of? Who would be the great anti-Beyonce? Well, I think that everyone has, has always known that um, uh, when the end times come, it will be a war between uh, the Tom Kitten and, Inf and the Infangelina, right? That uh, the Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie's uh, child will lead the forces of good, and Suri Cruz will lead the forces of evil. And there will be a great cataclysm, and into that cataclysm will come Beyonce with the power of Blue Ivy. And I think that, you know, anyone who cares can uh, find out uh, what Blue Ivy really stands for, but obviously we can't reveal it here on the podcast. 
But the um, I, I think that uh, what we have to be on the on the lookout for are the 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 first of all the people within the Illuminati who are attempting merely to use Beyonce as as cover, right? I, I think that there are people who believe they can manipulate her as um, uh, as as a as a shell uh, on their own. Um, uh, creepy uh, Illuminati ways, and I, I hope that she is o- alert to that danger. I think everything about Beyonce suggests that she is more than alert to that danger. I believe that there is there is a reason that she chose the um, uh, the, the work name Sasha Fierce uh, earlier in her career, and I think that it was a warning to, you know, those guys. So anyway, I, I think that uh, we, we have to worry about the forces of the of the Tom Kitten. I think that that's really who we're, we're looking at, but in terms of who they're their mortal agents are in the world. Obviously, Vladimir Putin. Obviously, Monsanto. Um, I think maybe Archer Daniels Midland. I, I, I can't really go into it uh, any yeah, further. Ken, Ken, I, I think it's. I think you've said too much already. Yeah. And, and it's time to move on to our next segment. I, I think you may be right. In perhaps a less forced segue than normally, the chuttering of keys in the How to Write Good establishment leads us to the land of pastiche. And Robin, uh, given that we have just engaged in uh, a simultaneous journalistic ripping of the cloth from mankind's eyes and a delightful post-Anton Wilson mashup, what do you think about pastiche and mashup in this age of postmodernry. Right. So I think you can see the impact of the postmodern now landing in genre literature, particularly fantasy and science fiction, uh, both in terms of the uh, structures and the assumptions that drive stories. Now you will increasingly see uh, settings uh, that are not based on a sense of extrapolation or here's this one you know, imaginary world, and I'm trying to make it seem real, but we're increasingly seeing uh, literary works that uh, draw on and combine different influences and images the same way that uh, comic books and movies and video games do. So you'll see, uh, you know, this is my post-apocalyptic Western world where uh, people uh, talk like Western characters, uh, but there are, you know, over here, there's, uh, you know, weird quasi-angels, and there's no, it's in the far future, but there's still, like, cowboys, but there's no uh, attempt at or need for an explanation that explains why there's cowboys again and angels in the future. It's just, you've got all of these elements, and they are uh, now interacting uh, with one of them. And so, and even, I think, steampunk, in a way, uh, is something that is consciously taking a series of tropes and combining them uh, with other things uh, in a sort of a referential way uh, rather than than an attempt to, as perhaps, you know, the, the difference engine was in the first place, to uh, let's tell a traditional science fiction story set in the past. Now you're seeing uh, something that is openly a mix of different uh, historical elements put in a cultural mix master for fun, and then you get to see the uh, interaction of all of these different images and, and tropes together. Do you think that's a, uh, I'm onto something there at all, or am I uh, talking out of my uh, postmodern side of my mouth? I think that you can definitely point to it. I 
I I would hesitate to say that it's taking over in any way. I think maybe elements of uh, mashup and elements of genre play, for lack of a better term, are becoming maybe more prominent because those were always prominent in the, these other media like comic books and uh, anime and, uh, to a lesser extent, um, visual media. And so as those media, and certainly in gaming, and, and certainly as those media are rising in people's consciousness, some of that is filtering over into uh, fiction. But I think if you look at, for example, most science fiction is still extrapolative in one sense or another, or even in the case of something like The Difference Engine, it was, you know, a conscious attempt to replicate the 21st century or the late 20th century's social and economic problems through the lens of a, you know, exciting uh, 19th century with computers and uh, Karl Marx as uh, the uh, head of a free state in New York. It's something I'm seeing a lot of in my capacity as uh, the editor of these Stoneskin press anthologies, where I think it's not even necessarily something that has fully uh, come to fruition, but something that you're seeing in the work of a lot of emerging writers. And although science fiction may be still extrapolative, this sort of... Uh, these pastiche worlds often contain the tropes of science fiction, the imagery, the technology, aliens, and so forth, without having the uh, structure of those genres. And so that raises the question of, is something really science fiction, um, or is it something else if it has, you know, magic and, and laser guns? Is it just, do we just call that uh, science fantasy, and does our current take on that differ from what, uh, you know, the earlier generations of space opera that tried to, you know, contain the available number of images and themes that you drew upon to something, while not strictly realistic, all sort of felt like part of the same one genre rather than as a uh, collision of genres. Another big genre collision, of course, is the paranormal romance genre, uh, romance in general, uh, has this real tendency toward subgenre and sub subgenre, and uh, you know there are all of these uh, different versions of uh, you know getting it on with vampires novels, uh, and uh, there's uh, you know sort of a permeable boundary between what's paranormal romance versus what's urban fantasy, uh, and uh, anything that is a contemporary fantasy, since the contemporary world is a science fiction world, also has elements of SF in it. Yeah, I, th I think you can definitely, once you start looking at contemporary novels of a certain uh, caliber or by the sort of author who has been paying attention to developments in computers and developments in informational transactions, you look at things like uh, William Gibson's last few novels, which are all basically spy novels or spy thrillers, but because they are written by someone who lives in the world of uh, postmodern branding and in the world of uh, computer use, and uh, as sort of an accepted way the universe operates, the novels feel more science fiction-y in a way that you would be hard-pressed to put your finger on if you're looking to sort of carve out the parts and say, how, why is this not, you know, just cyberpunk as opposed to realistic or thriller-realistic fiction? Right. It's, it's a, a thriller novel where they, where they stop a lot to talk about futurism. Mm -hmm. um, another thing that I'm seeing a lot with the submissions that I've been getting for the various stories is, uh, uh, and I guess this brings us into the actual instructional part of how to write good, <laughs> is an interest in setting things in the past and engaging with past styles. That is literally uh, 
writing in a pastiche style that recalls the style of an earlier era. And for the rest of the segment, I'd like to sort of give some basic ideas on how to do that well if you decide to do that. And uh, there, I've seen some really great pastiches, and I've seen some ones that don't work so well and require some more work, and then other ones where the pastiche is nearly always working but has a little bit of uh, trouble in it. And the number one piece of advice that I would give to anyone who's trying to replicate a particular style of the past, um, this assumes, of course, that you've uh, somehow immersed yourself in that style, right? That if you've only read parodies of that style, your work is going to come out as a as a gloss on a parody, but also that you should work to pastiche the very finest exponents of that period, uh, that uh, rather than, uh, and often it's, you're sort of, uh, you're shooting fish in a barrel to point out that certain past pro styles are kind of ridiculous and hokey today, and that if you want your story to be more than just sort of a winking satire at something that doesn't even deserve to be satirized anymore because it's no longer really an extant thing that needs to be satirized, um, I would say get away from the idea that the earlier prose style is funny and try to do that prose style as well as the best writers of that period uh, did it. So aim up uh, at Jane Austen rather than uh, down at whoever the... Uh, you know, the anti-Jane Austen of the Regency period would be. <laughs> um, I, I think that uh, a lot of this is tied up with notions, of, and of course when you are a simultaneously a Sherlockian and a Lovecraftian, as I am, you have read probably a killing amount of bad prose in, in, in what turns out to be, in both cases, an attempt to pastiche August or Leth, not an attempt to pastiche the original. And if you read, I think... Conan Doyle when he is not writing Sherlock Holmes, or you read uh, Robert Louis Stevenson when he is writing uh, London Mysteries, you will get a better direction into a Sherlock Holmes tone than you will if the only thing of Doyle you've ever read, or the only thing indeed of the uh, 1890s that you've ever read, are the 60 stories in the canon. I think that not just, you know, immersing yourself in Jane Austen is is the key, because you know, that's that's a that's a sheer joy, but you should also be reading other prose stylists that Jane Austen would have read and admired. You need to be reading people who then responded to Jane Austen in ways that are useful and interesting. Read, read the Bronte sisters, read uh, Fanny Burney and uh, those uh, novels that Jane Austen was working from so that you are part of an entire Regency universe as opposed to simply sort of trying to mince along between the raindrops and, um, uh, and, and just play all the keys Jane Austen, for excellent reasons, did not play on her piano fort. Right. And and often people who uh, pastiche poorly or in a spoofy way are pastiching a style that never was. Mm -hmm. Another thing to look out for is um, you really want outside readers to watch for modernisms creeping in, particularly in your dialogue, so that there are things that, you know, maybe somebody said that in that period, but it still sounds like a much more modern thing to say because it's something that we say a lot today. For example, any period piece before about 1967 in which people who are in love talk about their relationship, 
mm-hmm. uh, immediately hits my ear wrong because it's something that it's a word that was necessary for people to talk about their love connections, as it were, uh, when those became more complicated. But it's not a word that, uh, although it existed, was really used in that way. And uh, that always clangs on my ear. Or even things that uh, we say a lot more today than we did then. So, for example, on uh, Mad Men uh, this weekend, and Mad Men generally does a pretty good job of hitting it, but every so often there'll be a modern phrase. And so uh, Joan referred to somebody... uh, servicing a client, which is a problematic term in a couple of ways, but in this way, it's like, maybe they would have said that in 1968, but it became business jargon much more recently. Yeah, that's an 80s or 90s uh, business jargon. And so uh, you want to be clear and have something that's understandable to a modern reader, but a lot of the dialogue constructions are, are different. And so while you're reviewing the material that you are looking for, you might want to, you know, if you want to become really good at pastiching a particular uh, era, uh, you should uh, make sure that uh, you're looking out for what they say when in the modern sense we would say X or Y and find the standard locutions of of that period. And and sometimes it's just because people didn't express that idea as in the relationship example. The the author, uh, Mary Robinette Cowell, who does a uh, sort of Jane Austen with magic a series of novels, uh, went to the extent of putting together a concord. I forget if it was a concordance of Jane Austen or if she actually got to the OED files and filtered them for words that did not exist before or after 1818, or rather words that not, did not exist before 1818, and she put that list of words into the dictionary on her word processor so that if she used a word that Jane Austen could not have used, it shows up as an, as an error, right? It, it gets a little red underline. And she, she, she says that um, she doesn't always change the word, but she almost always uses that as a reason to go back and recast the sentence and to write it in a more Austen-y or, or, or Regency-era uh, uh, language, and I think that you don't necessarily have to do that mechanically, although that it it makes a pretty awesome thing if you have done it. I, I think that it's something you should be doing with your mind's eye as you're reading through, and be you know looking for individual pieces, like you say, of of word or or usage that stick out to you, and you know ask yourself why does that stick out? Is it because it is good or because it is jarring and calling attention to itself in some way. Right. And uh, I think you can do a Google search for an article that takes a look at all the uh, modernisms in Downton Abbey dialogue for the first mm-hmm. uh, couple of seasons. And uh, again, you know, I think you, it's very difficult if you are not a language expert to have an ear to spot commonplace phrases that are commonplace now, but were not used then. But uh, that's one of the, the perils of pastiche and uh, perhaps something that, that might make you wonder uh, to what extent it is actually worth trying to replicate a style of the past rather than trying to find a, a new style that tells us something about the future or a way to cast the ideas of the past that you want to deal with. Now, uh, that's not to say that all pastiche is bad. There's some really great pastiches in uh, the stories that I've accepted for Stone Scanner that are coming up, but there are some 
you know, extra hurdles that you're dealing with. And so hopefully we've presented you with an idea of what those hurdles are and can get you thinking about how to uh, jump them if you decide to get on on this uh, daunting literary task. and the clanking of the time gears, which indicates that we are in proximity to Ken's time machine, the vehicle that Ken uses at the behest of Time Incorporated to go back into history and alter, adjust, edit it, and uh, remove or add its serial commas. And in this case, Time Incorporated has had its attention caught by a, a story in the news about archaeological confirmation of the existence of cannibalism at the Jamestown colony. Uh, so before we get onto that, perhaps, Ken, you could uh, tell us a bit about uh, what the Jamestown colony was and uh, why it led to a spate of uh, people eating. Okay. Um, the Jamestown colony was the first uh, permanent English settlement in on the mainland of the New World. Uh, and by the New World, I, of course, mean the United States of America. Obviously, there were permanent settlements in Newfoundland because it was convenient to cod, and you could dry <laughs> cod there. And I, as far as I understand, people are still doing that even now. And I don't know, Robin, were there permanent settlements in Nova Scotia before 1607? Or was it just Newfoundland still? Uh, I cannot tell you that. All right, in that case, it almost certainly was not the case, because if anything was done in Canada before it was done in America, you would have learned it uh, with your uh, ABCs uh, back in Canada Day School. Yes, let's go with that story. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, 1607 is the first English settlement on the mainland of uh, the New World. And it is on a, the peninsula at the end of the James River in Virginia. It, it was uh, set up. Uh, the basic theory was that the New World, as the Spanish had proven, was uh, swarming with gold. And all you had to do was just sort of show up and dig about for a while. And if there was any hard work to be done, you could beat up the Indians and make them do it. And that was sort of the theory by which the Jamestown colony was initially founded. Uh, that theory does not work when, A, you are landing opposite the Powhatan uh, Confederacy, which at that time was expanding into the power vacuum caused by the first wave of uh, smallpox epidemics, which had been brought by the earlier traders and those Newfoundland uh, cod fishermen, and uh, was therefore an expanding uh, military empire, not a decadent one, as the Aztecs and Incas had been. And second of all, it helps if you do it where there is actual gold, which there was not in Jamestown. There was hilariously a large supply of iron pyrite, uh, fool's gold, which they spent perhaps more effort than they should have digging out of the land and piling onto boats for shipment back to England. Um, and with the result of all of this sort of misapplied effort and the presence of a expanding, vigorous Indian confederacy next door, the Jamestown colony rapidly found itself sort of geopolitically hemmed in and without sufficient food. The plan had always been that they would uh, extort or trade for food with the Indians, that they would be able to grow some food there in the in the New World, and that they would bring uh, food over from uh, Britain if they needed more food. That, of course, 
foundered on the resolution of the Paladin Confederacy that they were not going to tolerate any more than a shop where they could buy metal knives and axes, and on the incapacity of the Virginia Company to organize steady shipments of food, food costing money, whereas colonists would pay you money when they got on the boat. So the Virginia Company preferred to send ships full of colonists and no food. Uh, this is compounded, of course, by the fact that they're doing this during the pit of the Little Ice Age, which is the global climactic minimum that we are climbing out of even as we speak. Um, and uh, therefore, the, uh, the, 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 the soil in Virginia, never particularly salubrious, was even worse in 1607 than it is, say, now, when you can go to uh, the Virginia shore and think that everything seems pretty nice here and you don't understand why people would be starving to death all winter or um, uh, 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 dying of exposure, as indeed they did. So th the story in the news is that uh, fragments of a 14-year-old uh, girl's skeleton uh, were uh, discovered and have now been uh, studied in the... Uh, they were found in a cellar full of debris, and they found uh, the skull, the lower jaw, and a leg bone, all of which show signs of post-mortem uh, butchering, and so this confirms something that um, was in a number of historical accounts, which is that the starvation at the colony got so bad that uh, people were eaten. There's like a, a court case where a guy was uh, hung for, uh, uh, was it killing and then salting and eating his wife or salting and eating his wife after death? I'm... It was. It, it's, it's all post-mortem. They did not, as far as we know, and certainly if you're willing to... Um, uh... Uh, go to the uh, trouble of having a court case about it. You are investigating the problem. Um, they did not, so far as we know, kill their fellow colonists for food, but their fellow colonists were dropping like flies for any number of reasons, uh, not uh, not uh, solely restricted to exposure and starvation. Uh, there was also, you know, affrays at arms and being killed by the Indians, which was going on fairly regularly at this point. And there was a strong possibility that uh, there was arsenical uh, contamination of some of either some of the supplies from England or some of the groundwater for other reasons, and the people were dying of arsenic poisoning. And the the, the cannibalism then was uh, survival cannibalism, yes, not right. uh, recreational. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> it's it's all recreational at some <laughs> level, but uh, but in this particular case, it was post mortem survival cannibalism, where they are eating the dead bodies as opposed to. Um, uh, providing live bodies to eat, and and this was, uh, and this is sort of like the discovery of Richard III, insofar as it doesn't tell us something new, but uh, confirms uh, with lovely bones uh, what was already in the uh, written historical record. Right. Yeah. It, it was not news to anyone who had uh, read a, a, re a history of the Jamestown, and by recent uh, history of the Jamestown colony, you could read the one that was written in 1625, and it discusses it. So this has not been particularly secret information. So uh, this, at, at any rate, has uh, reminded Time Incorporated that in one of its many post-it notes, it was uh, addressed the problem of the Jamestown uh, colony, and you've uh, mentioned a whole bunch of uh, problems that they uh, encountered, and so it uh, looks like you've got a, a bunch of different things to get around when you go back in time, uh, translated by the time machine into the period dress and version of English that they will find familiar so that you are not uh, hung as a devil, which is uh, always a bad thing to happen on a time travel mission. So what do you do to uh, prevent the uh, 
descent into starvation and cannibalism and the various other disasters uh, that befell the Jamestown colony. Well, the fundamental thing that you need to do is you need to avoid the wreck of the Sea Venture. Uh, the Sea Venture was the flagship of the Virginia Company. It was loaded up with all of the food for what was called the Third Supply, the great mission that was going to send more colonists and more food. This is after John Smith has taken charge in Jamestown and issued his famous uh, if he does not, does not work, neither shall he eat order, which is sort of the, um, uh, the, the come to Jesus moment for the colonists in Jamestown. He re refuses to allow any more digging around for iron pyrite like a bunch of morons. He sends people to go uh, gather clams to start fishing. Right. So it wasn't just that you had to work, but you had to work at acquiring food. Exactly. Yeah. That that was the, that he made that the, the colony priority. And one does not want to short circuit John Smith and the initial uh, sort of smack in the face of starvation and hard work, I think is, it was salutary for the future development of Virginia and indeed of America, I think, because uh, a nation of people who just got to enslave Indians and get gold turns into Peru, which nobody, I think, wants, and perhaps even the Peruvians. So the uh, American work ethic is uh, rooted in the threat of cannibalism? I think that the American root ethic is certainly rooted in the threat of starvation and or being killed by uh, angry neighbors who want to keep all their food. So the governorship of, of, John, of John Smith is the thing that really sort of turns the colony around and heads it in the right direction. John Smith is then badly injured by a gunpowder accident, as it is phrased in the histories, which can cover a multitude of sins from disgruntled guys who didn't want to work but still wanted to eat, setting off his gunpowder, uh, to being shot in the side, to any number of other problems, to the fact that, you know, 17th century gunpowder was chancy stuff, and he's sailing it around in a canoe, and uh, there's all manner of things that can go wrong. That is one so, for the annals of vague locution. Exactly. So preventing John Smith's gunpowder accident would also help. But the crucial difference is that the Sea Venture, as it's sailing toward America, gets caught up in a hurricane and winds up stranded in Bermuda with all of the colony's food supplies. And while that does, to some extent, inspire the Tempest, and I definitely... Uh, if I redirect the sea venture around the hurricane, we'll want to deliver Shakespeare a copy of The Tempest anyway, just to make sure that that gets written. <laughs> well, you, you can just tell him you're the Earl of Oxford and you dashed it off for him. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell him I'm uh, Christopher Marlowe and I'm back from faking my death. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I'll, I, will, I, will, um, uh, I will make sure The Tempest still gets in there. Uh, and uh, But the sea venture, if it arrives in, J in Jamestown with the cargo of food that it had been bringing probably prevents the starving time from being that very starving. Uh, a previous mission of mine, uh, which I think uh, may be why Time Incorporated is sending me back here, was to hurry up Lord Delaware. Lord Delaware uh, literally arrives as the third uh, supply is getting ready to evacuate Jamestown because this is a horrible mistake and everyone is starving to death. And, and another batch of, of boats have have shown up after the starving time, after the co the population of the colony has been dropped from 500 to 60. They're getting ready to evacuate. Lord Delaware shows up at literally as the other ships are leaving Chesapeake Bay and says, oh, excuse me, everyone turn around, go back. I'm governor of this colony, and I need there to be a colony here. And at gunpoint forces them to return to Jamestown, but he also sort of reinstates John Smith's previous... Uh, regime of um, uh, 
combination of armed raids against the Paladin Confederacy and negotiation from positions of strength. He obviously brings a lot of food. He brings carpenters and stonemasons and people who are actually useful, uh, as opposed to gold miners and indolent aristocrats, which is what much of the first batch of Jamestownians had been. And he really sort of, you know, he deserves a better state than Delaware to be named after him. Let's let's put it that way. He oversees the, the, the strategic marriage of John Rolfe and Pocahontas that sort of sets the terms of the alliance between Powhatan and the newly expanded uh, Jamestown colony. Powhatan is a bright guy. He recognizes that his moment to starve the Americans out or the English uh, out uh, has sort of passed and ceases the active campaign of siege warfare that had pretty much... He, I mean, he was that close to winning. And then Delaware shows up, and it, of course, it, that is the very sign of a time intervention when someone shows up at literally the last minute. So I think I might try and hasten Lord Delaware along as well uh, after the uh, sea venture has has landed, sort of to uh, build strength on strength and extend and expand Jamestown at that point. But the the crucial things are is to turn the sea venture around, get it get it away from the hurricane, get it to Jamestown with that. Uh, cargo hold full of food and supplies. And that prevents, certainly it prevents survival cannibalism. It may not prevent the winter from being particularly awful because the winter seems to have just been particularly awful. It, it, yes, this is not Ken's weather machine. Right, yeah. yeah that's, that would be crazy. That, that can't work. Um, if, you, if you can avoid John Smith's gunpowder accident, I suspect also there is less um, uh, desperate flailing and therefore probably also less uh, starvation cannibalism. Right, and you'll have to like hit the ground and see what the situation is leading to his gunpowder accident in order to mm-hmm. prevent it, since the annals are unclear on that point. <laughs> the annals are, are, are remarkably reticent for yes. something involving Captain John Smith, who is normally really happy to tell you all about Captain John Smith and all the awesome stuff that Captain yes. John Smith One did. One might say intentionally elided. <laughs> yes, yeah, which is, I guess, really the reason why you might believe it's an accident, because if he was smoking and dropped his match into his gunpowder and it went off and injured him, he probably might want to leave out the specifics of what happened. <laughs> Um, so you've, uh, without uh, making things too easy on uh, the Jamestown colony and, and thus eradicating the American work, work ethic in its cradle, uh, you have uh, aligned the uh, Jamestown colony a bit more uh, toward survival and avoided uh, all of that unseemly uh, cannibalism. So uh, what, if any, impact, since you have a side mission to replace the Tempest, uh, does this have on the timeline? I, I think that at, at this point, uh, as I say, literally, Paladin comes within a whisker of winning, and Paladin is not an idiot. He he may be one of the one of the and, and we ran into a lot of really smart Indian uh, uh, leaders, Indian uh, heads of, of of confederations or or, or nations. He's because he's so early and because he's so sort of tied up in that first Thanksgiving uh, stuff. I think people sort of underrate what a really clever. Um, uh, power player he was, and the degree to which he was able to build a a, a real working uh, system that was able to to, to balance the, the the whites, to balance the the Iroquois on the other side of the mountains, to balance all the kind of strategic problems that he had, and basically stay you know top dog in Virginia for a great long time. I think that if the the, the hand of the Jamestown settlers is going to be stronger against Paladin, but it's not. Is still going to be overwhelming. I don't think that he goes away. I think once, as happened in our history, he recognizes that Jamestown becomes more a source of strength 
for him against other uh, rival Indian confederations and Indian tribes that uh, he, you know, if anything, probably uh, extends uh, his, his cooperation and extends his interest in working with Jamestown. Now, the question of whether or not uh, Jamestown gets, you know, sort of above itself and tries um, uh, to, um, to destroy uh, the Powhatan Confederacy a little early, obviously, um, the, the Confederacy continues, uh, you know, trying uh, conclusions with, um, with, with, the, with the colonists, and at one point uh, you have a, a generalized massacre of, um, uh, of settlers in 1622 that uh, is sort of the, the, the opening gun of a war of extermination, and I don't know to what extent that was specifically uh, Powhatan himself, and to what extent that was um, the guy who uh, took over after him. Uh, Chief Powhatan dies, I think, in 1618, and so the guys after him are not as smart and therefore think that they can fight a war involving uh, metal weapons against the guys who bring all the metal weapons, and that just doesn't work. But I think that, again, the, 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 time, stra- the, the time frame is so short and the power imbalance you know, with or without the sea venture is so marginal that I don't think you have a big impact on uh, the time stream, except maybe we put off the, the, the Powhatan massacre until uh, it becomes a more conventional sort of massacre in which it's the Americans massacring the Indians, not the other way around. And uh, perhaps you could maybe throw Powhatan a, a sort of uh, a time bone in order to make up for uh, bringing uh, Delaware there on time? Yeah, maybe give him... Uh, <laughs> a, I mean, again, we, we don't know an awful lot about him. We don't know um, how he how he died or anything else. If he if he died of disease, it would be um, uh, you know relatively child's play, I imagine, to to inoculate him. So, if you arrange to meet him when you're back there, what what do you most want to know about him? I, I you know I want to know what his sort of response is to the uh, to, to to these to these aliens. I mean, it's literally you know handling an alien contact, and if you you know, look at the way he handled it. He handled it better than I expect most people would handle, you know, a bunch of uh, technologically superior Martians or Syrians or whatever showing up on the, uh, you know, on, on, on the shores of Virginia or anywhere else with uh, superior weapons. Right, and, and that's uh, Syrians without a Y, I take it. Yeah, right, yes. It, yeah, if, if, if a bunch of Syrians show up in Virginia, we're fairly, we're fairly sure that we'll just give them green cards and get them working in um, uh, used car lots or wherever. But, uh, yeah, if people from the Star Sirius show up, then I, I do not put money on our current national security establishment having anywhere near the, the, the brains and guts of Powhatan. And so I think just sort of getting, you know, getting him to dictate his memoirs would be, you know, something to put on the shelf next to my autographed copy of The Tempest. Uh, well, uh, once we've circled back to uh, Shakespeare, I think that uh, shows that uh, this is uh, yet another uh, time stream well rectified and another podcast well finished. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Drive Through RPG. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Palgrain Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Put a ring on us at kennethrobintalkaboutstuff.com. Or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. Stuff. <laughs>